1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Poet, novelist, essayist, and a wonderful writer of short stories, Sandra Cisneros is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. She's the author of the acclaimed The House on Mango Street, Carmelo, Woman Hollering Creek, and much, much more. Sandra and I talk about and celebrate the publication of her newest work, the dual language, Martita, I remember you. Martita te recuerdo, called exquisite by Publishers Weekly, and a detail, both beautiful and brief, by Kirkus. In our freewheeling conversation, Sandra treats us to her views on immigration, memory, family, what she's reading, The Lure of Paris, and the need for all of us to recognize the humanity in each other and find a way for dialogue to bridge the great divide that seems to have us firmly in its grip.
0: You know, where do we come to some place with people that we love that we can dialogue and come to some place that we can make meaningful change for both of us? I would like to see that people dialogue with people they love. You know, because it's real easy to shout at people you don't know, but it's very different to uh, listen and dialogue with people that you know is your father or your brother or your sister uh, or your child or your mother. I think these are, you know, to me, when I had to come to places where I had to discuss things. Uh, for example, I, I had to write a letter to a woman who wanted to ban house on Mongo Street in her community and she didn't want her child to read it she'd had a very negative experience and and she just thought her child should not read it and um, i remember that my agent at that time you know dissuaded me from writing to her i wanted to write her a letter and dialogue and susan said oh no you're just going to waste your time and i said you know i have some time This week, I'm traveling to New Mexico and I was gonna write other things. I'm gonna write this letter. And I had to imagine I was writing it to my father because he and I were often at odds in my life about everything. And uh, it caused me to write to her with a lot of respect and love. And I think we're not coming to these dialogues with respect and love because it's just an abstract other person, the enemy. But if you think about it being the person you love the most, then you're not going to call them names or bash them or come with a big stick. You can come with respect. And that respect is mutual, you know, the listening and the giving. And I think that's not there in any of our conversations. That's what so has pained me about what's happening with America now. We're not having those dialogues and places of love and respect. So I invested a week writing to this woman and uh, writing her a letter that I rewrote before I sent it like all week, revising it. And uh, she wrote back to me. And, uh, you know, if you want a more detailed account, it's in my house of my own book of essays. And she eventually came to some place where I could explain to her the things that she was objecting to that she thought were, was witchcraft or evil and her Her spiritual beliefs was a very different way of what we call brujas and my spiritual beliefs that are healers and and that they have different names in our society in the U.S. that called therapists or nurses or psychologists, you know, that I was just talking about that. I wasn't talking about, and someone's gonna put an evil spell on you. And, uh, you know, when we came to some place of dialogue where we could hear each other and that I said, you know, she had every right to, Withdraw books from her child's hands as her parent. I, I can't tell her what to do, but those books need to be there for somebody else because books are medicine. That's not your son's prescription, but somebody else may need that. And we came to some uh, peaceful place, so I think love and respect is missing in the dialogues.
1: Do you think you know, as someone who who um, approaches her writing? using different forms. Do you think it may be the fact that you wrote a letter as opposed to, you know, what happens on Twitter or what happens, you know, Mm -hmm. in this kind of truncated Mm -hmm. way that we express ourselves?
0: Well, the problem is if I had written a, a tweet or an email, I would have sent it off when I was angry. And it took me a long time to rewrite and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it as if I was going to send it to my father. And my father was no longer alive, so I, I truly channeled his love and, and when I was writing it to someplace that was respectful. And uh, I think that that's what's missing is that it's too easy to press send. And you know, everything begins with a thought and you have to plant that thought to be something that's peaceful and revise and revise and revise. Because a lot of my writing is about revision. People don't see the early drafts. Uh, where small me comes in and begins it with a rant, or begins with something evil. And then eventually, you know, through the composting, which is the wonderful, miraculous thing of why why we write that it, it we travel from the small ego eye, to this amazing, you know, Buddha like godlike person. And, you know, I'm just a rough draft. So when I talk, I make A lot of mistakes and plant a lot of careless Pancho Villa like seeds shooting things in the air and then when I come to the writing and revise which is me at my highest um, that's when I'm best that's that's why I chose to write to her
1: today we're celebrating the publication of your new most remarkable book uh, Martita I remember you Uh, yeah And And Martita,
0: te uh, recuerdo on the other side by Liana Valenzuela, laboring to translate my words into beautiful Spanish.
1: Which is, and it's beautifully done. It's done, for those of you who can't see this, the book has, uh, 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 it's got, um, it's beveled edges. It's also done, you know, like with flaps, like the old French, you know, the old. Freak. I
0: call it the old Mexican way with the flames. The old
1: Mexican way, right. But the old people who publish books in paperback. And it's got a beautiful photograph on the cover. And it is bilingual. And for me, who's always struggling with my Spanish, I've had a really good time. I read the English and I'm trying to work my way through the Spanish as well. It's a kind of.
0: And I had to read the Spanish for the first time and perform it on the audio. So I do the audio in English all the time and all my books. But this was the first time that I did the, Liliana's translations. And that was challenging for me, just to be oh, able I'm sure. to get my lips to work <laughs> all those words, take a deep breath and enunciate in Spanish. That was difficult.
1: Well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the origin story of Martita. Where, okay. where did it come from?
0: It, it came from a real Martita that I met, but I like to say there's a series of Martitas. Yes, there was one real Martita that I met in Paris with another woman who was actually Argentine. So it was, there were two Argentine women, but I met two Italian women when I was in Milano and I met an American woman when I was in Nice and I met my friend, who's still my friend now, Yasna and Sarajevo, and I met people in Spain. So there was like many martitas that I gathered together and glommed onto a real martita. And uh, the real martita wrote to me when I was back in the States, you know, maybe 10 years later, and, and, and I, a letter came. that's basically her letter, uh, mas o menos. And uh, I felt this surge of emotion for her. And uh, I wanted to explore what those emotions were, and and trying to follow that story. Uh, I wrote the first part of Martita, and I tried to hand it in at that point in my life in the early 90s as the a part of the collection of Woman Hollering Creek. But you can see what an odd fish this story is. It's nothing like the stories in Woman Hollering Creek that basically take place in Texas, Mexico. And so my editor said, well, this story obviously it doesn't fit and it's not done, it needs to go on further. You can't just stop there. Uh, I had stopped at the section of the tango, New Year's Eve tango dance. I stopped there, I thought that was enough. And my editor didn't agree, my agent didn't agree, so I put it aside. And uh, I always loved this story, I just felt it was, you know, it. it I, I loved how it pulled all of the senses and all the details and the people in it. And and then I especially loved when Martita ceased to be me, and she would say things that I wouldn't say, and it took off and became other people in my life that I cut and pasted into my own story. So it did, it was born for me traveling when I was 28, 29. But uh, when I was that age, um, I seemed to attract younger people. I hung out with people in their 20s, men and women. And, uh, you know, very rarely did I have meet somebody that was my age or uh, get involved with someone who was older. Mostly all my, my companions were young people. Quien sabe? Well, who knows why? And uh, so that's why I could, you know, uh, explore a younger me in the...
1: Uh, oh, what's so interesting in is, so you started it when you were the younger you, and then you picked it up again when you were older and you were able to... Yeah,
0: look- I started you know, it when I was 20... 20- it, no, no. I it lived it when I was 28, 29, wow. hanging hey, with a 20 year old and I started it like when I was 40 about right. and then now I'm 66 so I picked it up, up when I was 60 some around there, 61. Yeah,
1: no, so it has, it, I think that's why it has the certain qualities that it has. It has, you know, I'm 66 as well and I had that same idea of wanting to go to Paris and I went and you know, I had a URL pass and I, I traveled all around in my mid-twenties. I had left uh, school at the time. And, you know, I, I lived the kind of uh, movable feast life at the time. I went to all the cafes like you did. And I, so the, the, the thing that was so amazing about reading this is that it had, it, it was so beautifully written, but it had that sense of youth But it also had that sense of the passage of time. And it had that sense of nostalgia that we all, that I as a 66-year-old, look back at a period of my life where there seemed to be so much hope and so much kind of uncertainty and something that we all kind of uh, uh, reveled in back in that period. And I kept also having this overriding feeling that I had wished that I had run into Martina and her two friends <laughs> back then. I would have loved. They were loved
0: everywhere. That. They were like in every. I country. know,
1: I know, but I didn't end up at those parties. I didn't end up at that <laughs> dangle party. I would have loved to, you know. Maybe I was a little too shy. I don't know exactly what it was, but you know, I, I just it was. Um, you captured that sense of promise and that, and then looking back, finding the letter when she, or thinking of the letter when she's sitting in her her kitchen in Chicago, and, you know, thinking about a different time. Uh, that was that that was added on, wasn't it? Is, did yeah, that-
0: you know, I, I I did the piece when I wrote it, it, it that Chicago part wasn't there. Uh, you know, I don't think so, that Chicago part was there that was added later. Um, when I originally wrote it, it just took place in Paris. And, you um, parts of my past floated up. Like, you know, when I was young, uh, I was uh, uh, involved with an anarchist carpenter. <laughs> uh, you know, he he wasn't a real anarchist and, you know, belonged to the international workers of the world. And wow. you know, he, he owned, yeah, a real one. I have, I have to write about him.
1: A wobbly. And, you were involved with a wobbly. wobbly.
0: Yeah. And I didn't know anything. I was very... Uh, in Were a, you
1: living in Chicago at the time? Yeah, I was living
0: in Chicago and he owned a building and he would often uh, you know I'd stay with him in this derelict building that was something like Razzo Rizio's, you know, <laughs> foundation. And he'd give me a hammer, or a sledgehammer, or a scraper and say, come on, help me. And you know, I was like little Miss Pris. I didn't know how to do anything. You had just got all the hammer. Had he you would would come say,
1: from Iowa already? You had already. Uh,
0: I had. I had come from Iowa. I was teaching in the barrio. He was one of my colleagues at the community, uh, at the alternative school in the community. And if I stayed with him, it was like a real baptism by fire because it was a hardcore neighborhood. and I lived in a different hardcore neighborhood on the other side of town. So it was. To me it was scary staying at his house not only because there were no walls and pigeons flying in but you know it was, was, he, it was he was he
1: renovating it as well with the idea He was
0: of- he was rehabbing this dusty old shell of a building and knocking things out and giving me sledgehammers and showing me how to use a sledgehammer right. how to use a scraper how to turn out I had no skills about construction, but you know how you see those renovation shows now where the women are like, "Ah." (laughs) I got to do that. Uh, You know, not very, not very well, and not enough to see the project finished. But he would give me these tools and show me how to use them. So I I don't know how that and how I thought of that when I uh, wrote this story, I, I can't even remember how it came up.
1: So you start the book by saying, most Saturdays, you can find me in the dining room with my scraper and blowtorch, once the kitchen is clean and the girls are at the library, in 88 BC, Mith- Mithri- Mithridates,
0: yeah, Mithridates,
1: on the Euxine, was,
0: at war, with was Rome. at war
1: with Rome. Xenophon, <laughs> things bubble up from I don't know where inside me, like the sticky layers of varnish. I'm attacking with the propane torch. So I was going, wait a minute. How do we get from there to Paris? That's what I'm wondering.
0: Torch to Paris. That's and a was, good question. I was thinking, practice, maybe, practice, practice. I was That's thinking, the-
1: I was thinking maybe you're cooking with protein, propane. Maybe you were doing something really unusual with the scraper. It was a very interesting off-kilter way of approaching, which I thought was just brilliant in retrospect when I think back to where it takes you. Uh,
0: We have so many things, Mitch, that have happened to us that we haven't told people like I don't think any I'd ever mentioned to anyone that I knew how to use a propane torch and a scraper. And that's one of my little what I call the 10 times 10, the 10 things that I know that no one else knows. You have a a 10 times 10 times 10, 10 million things. And those are the things that as writers we need, we need to write about to make the stories come to life.
1: Well, with your with your ability with a propane torch. Have you ever thought of becoming a sculptress at all oh my sculpture? goodness <laughs> well
0: you never know uh, there's yes. a lot of things in time i i love art so you i never say never anymore because i said i would never live in mexico and look
1: <laughs> <Thank> you, <Very laughs> but, much you know i'm
0: glad you like that i just wanted to tell you where that little button came from you know from being in my mid-20s with my anarchist boyfriend who i have to write about in my next book of essays i want to write about all these exploding cigars, these men in my life who, who through disastrous relationships and wonderful moments brought me to who I am. And I'm very grateful. Look, I was able to use that. Not only did I learn how to scrape varnish off a hutch, but I got to put it in a story.
1: Well, exactly. And you've learned how to use all of these um, good, bad, and indifferent relationships, one way or another.
0: I'm grateful for all the anarchists in my life.
1: There's hints of your dad in all of this, right? My I
0: father mean, came up in this story before I had written Caramelo, And, yeah. you know, he has a big role in Caramelo. but I'd forgotten that he was here. And it's a very uh, accurate uh, autobiographical portrait, uh, you know, that I created. Well, you
1: even have him as an upholsterer, which which is what he was, right? yes.
0: He, yes. I I feel uh, so much love for my father and, you know, his profession of sitting there by himself, humming and shouting my mother's name between, you know, hammering the furniture, you know, those are things that I, I knew so well. And when I wrote the story originally, it was easy for me to write it because I'd witnessed my father and I loved my father and paid attention to um, his work, his labor. So I was very happy to, pay homage to my father and his
1: father. is at one point he asks you in the book to come home or not you or the, the, the character, character,
0: come the character home now
1: and then you say something like doesn't he remember how much he traveled and you know, and that is autobiographical as well that, that right? Is,
0: because You're, when i was in paris i understood my father better My father had meandered during World War II to the United States, got caught up in a war that wasn't his, served and became a US citizen. So uh, I understood my father's vulnerability, the people he talked about who befriended him, the people who saved him when he was in disastrous moments with no money. He told these stories and I understood them because I felt I was repeating my father's life. And it gave me an insight into uh, an immigrant coming to the United States with no resources, no friends. And it has made me very sensitive uh, to the plight of immigrants because I am an immigrant's daughter and, and I understand my father's life and heard his stories. So maybe, you know, even since House on Mongo Street, I, I wrote about an immigrant in Herardo no last name. And I'm still writing about immigration in this story.
1: Well, and you write about migration, and you write about people on the move, and mm-hmm. that was certainly your dad, right? He was, and it, yeah. the effect that it had on you, going back and forth from Chicago to Mexico, and you and know. even
0: today, you know, every time we go over the railroad tracks, there are people standing outside of town by the railroad tracks holding their uh, IDs from their native countries and asking for coins. And I always, uh, once I understood, because in the beginning I didn't know who they were, my heart just goes out to the difficult journey that people have going through Mexico, because Mexico is harder maybe than, they, than traveling through the United States or, or as hard. Especially with the policies now, it's just the same as you know our administration in the US. So it's a, it's a difficult time where it's the issue that has been ignored. Uh, by both parties until now, they can't ignore it. You know, we remember back before 9-11, there was hope for reformation on those immigration laws. And then 9-11 happened and that just got forgotten. So it's been something that is all of the countries, I think of the first world have not addressed. And they certainly have not addressed it in a proper way by dealing with the sources, but more with the, Uh, after effects when they come when people migrate to their country
1: why do you think this country is so reticent at accepting immigrants even though the entire you know most all of us who live here come from an immigrant background in one way or another is it about the other is it about fear
0: I think it's about money don't you I mean I'm not an expert but I think that it's just easier to shut down a border than to Uh, work with uh, other governments and creating some sort of policy and investing in other countries. I think it's just, you know, it just, is too difficult. I don't think it's too difficult. I think they should get people like Padre Solalinde, who works here in Mexico, uh, giving housing to people who are migrating and giving care, and other uh, compassionate and visionary human beings on the planet. I'm sure there's more than Padre Solalinde. There's our human resources that we haven't investigated that you know if we can create a pentagon of warriors why can't we create a pentagon of like peacemakers well you know we're um, a deeply uh, christian society in the united states so how come we don't act like christ and welcome no. the stranger and i think that there's enough people that are are good people in in all parties in all parts of the United States who want to do the right thing, but I think we lack leadership. And, and I'm saying, you know, uh, leadership that is not coming from one party to another, but leadership that can bring people, great spiritual leadership that can bring us all together to uh, communicate with respect and love.
1: That is very, so beautifully said. Um, shifting a little bit, you know, we, we, we all have, martitas in our life we all remember them uh, it's such a universal story um
0: and i wonder if the real martita maybe i could find her because i don't remember her 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 you know this was before before the internet i don't know her last name i don't know where she is i hope she reads this story and realize that i've taken parts of her and and like a piece of sculpture i've sculpted on Here it is without my little blowtorch. I've sculpted on the lives of many of my Martitas in my life to create a Martita that's based on her, but that isn't her.
1: Well, and the other beautiful thing about the story is that it was a melding of so many different cultures too. You know, you have, you know, one one of the three women is from Italy, another is from Argentina, Uh, you were uh, in Chicago, I just you
0: know I just met these women. As I said, they they felt like they came from the Republic of Women. It was a lot in common with all of us, regardless whether we spoke Italian or Serbo-Croatian or Spanish. And I just put them all together in my stories because they are lodged in my heart. I write them from my heart. And I edit later from my head, so a lot of things just sprouted here without my even being conscious of what I was doing. How
1: long? How long were you in Paris at the time?
0: I was actually in Paris just uh, like five, six weeks. It was very short. Yeah.
1: But it has quite an impact, doesn't it? Why Paris? Why does Paris have that impact? Do you think?
0: Well, don't you were there too? Why? Because it's some sort of a confirmation and baptism for us as writers. You know, we want to get to the Mecca. Of where writers go to write, maybe to, con- to convince ourselves that we're really artists. Yeah, I had this uh, romantic idea of Paris from Belle Epoque, so I was terribly disappointed with Paris. I expected it to look differently and to feel differently, and it, I just I was so discombobulated by you know modern everyday Paris with the Paris of you know old sepia photographs and fashion from a 100 years before. So I was, um, I like the word in Spanish, decepcionada. It (laughs) sounds so great. I was deceived. It wasn't (laughs) Colette's Paris. No, no it
1: wasn't. So being in Mexico now, what is the community like in in Mexico? What is the literary community like there?
0: Oh, there's a lot of uh, happening. But uh, I try to I try to remove myself from it and 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 come out very, very seldom because I don't want to get swept up to my previous life of, of being an arts administrator. I worked with Penn San Miguel for a while, uh, for a couple of years. I'm still a member and it brought them, uh, helped to bring speakers to help raise funds for our you know rescue of emergency fund for writers but you know even that made me feel like i was not focusing on my writing so you know there's there's a vibrant community here uh, some real writers and some wannabe writers and people in different you know stages of their writing and that's how it should be but i i try not to uh, be accessible because otherwise uh, i'm my own worst enemy <laughs>
1: I work I, I bring that up only because one of the things that i associate with you so clearly is how generous you are with other writers and putting yeah forth.
0: it's my it's my uh blessing and curse
1: yeah no i'm sure it is but you know i i'm always interested in who you're reading who you're discovering is there anyone that comes to mind that you want to talk about a little um, bit
0: there's a new writer who just who, new to me who just came out with a book called gordo and uh, I think it's Jaime Cortez, you know, check that before you... <laughs> he's got a great book that is uh, sad and, and tragic and hilarious and funny uh, about a child, the, a child of migrant workers in California. And I think that's a great book. I'm always going to champion uh um, Christina Granados from El Paso. She's a fiction writer who's been overlooked and I, I can't tell you, you know, how much I admire her writing. Um, and let me see who else. Uh, there's a young man in San Antonio, Joe Jimenez. Uh, fiction, he's writing a new novel. He's a poet and a fiction writer. I think he's terrific. There's a lot of younger writers uh, coming up uh, from... Uh, Texas that I'm familiar with that are gay writers and they're all so great, you know. Especially, but the problem is a lot of them write poetry, so they never make have that crossover appeal because people aren't used to reading poetry. So um, I don't know. There's just so many. I listed a lot of them in the uh, by the book section last Sunday, New York Times. You and- know, it
1: was really wonderful. And the other thing that I really love too. Uh, is your discussion of immigrant children, and, and your, you know, incredible devotion to sort of uh, highlighting that, and also yeah. highlighting some of the people like Ruth Behar, who write about that. and René
0: Calato of- Lainez, who writes children books, because he was yeah. an immigrant child, René Grande, of course. Uh, I'm reading the galleys to Manuel Munoz's book that also has short, beautiful short stories about people who are uh, working and and migrating and another wonderful writer, you know, Manuel Munoz, uh, my colleague. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up. A
1: Wonderful time. Don't you think?
0: Yes. It's like like a renaissance. And, 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 you know, when I get anthologies now, Mitch, I'm, delighted that i don't know most of the younger writers that so many new ones i'm so uh, excited by the flourishing that's happening and if i don't know them that's great that means there's new writers coming up a crop
1: and and i think this is a good time to mention somebody that we both are so fond of she's been your agent for so long and that's someone who who basically was a pioneer in helping to bring so many new voices out and that's susan Yeah,
0: Susan Bergholz has uh, changed literary history. I think when someone does their thesis one day in the future, (laughs) she's this unsung behind the scenes hero that helped to get me published. And, you know, really uh, worked really hard to get so many writers of color published in New
1: York. Um, Do you mind I, I don't want to spring this on you? Can you read a little bit from the book? Do you think? We would love that if you could. I know you have another interview coming up as well.
0: Okay. Sometimes I think of you at, at moments, Marta, when I'm teaching the youngest how to brush her own hair or painting my toes on the back porch and painting my girls toes too. I suspect it must be that way for you too, which is when we both must be thinking of the other tugging and yanking like tides. To lose myself in a book, Martita, in 88 BC, Mithridates, king of Pontus on the Euxine, was at war with Rome. Isn't that pretty? Did you know the Euxine was what they called the Black Sea back then? To live in a book for a little, a story, a poem. Wonder how it is a poem can say so much so beautifully.
1: Uh, So beautiful, Sandra. Thank you so much for being on The Literary Life.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the great conversation. We got started before we knew we were getting started. And I thank you.